is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between, including your stories. And we'd love to hear them. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll put them up on the air. You are the hour in Our American Stories. And it's time now for our Rule of Law series, where we tell stories about what this Rule of Law thing is and what happens when it's absent or present in our lives. Today's edition comes from a Wisconsin father named Michael Bell. I got a phone call at 2 a.m. on November 9, 2004. It was my oldest daughter, and she said, Dad, you need to come to the hospital right away. Michael's been shot. When I arrived, I saw that the district attorney was huddled with about five police officers. The last time I saw my son alive was on a gurney. His head was wrapped in a big towel and blood was coming out of it. I had learned that an officer had put a gun directly to Michael's right temple. The gun misfired and then did it again, and this time he shot him. From the beginning, I cautioned patience, though Michael's mother and sister were in uproar. But as an Air Force officer and a pilot, I knew the way that safety investigations are conducted. And I was thinking that this was going to be conducted the same way, yet within 48 hours I got the message. The police had cleared themselves of all wrongdoing. In 48 hours, they hadn't even taken statements from several witnesses. Crime lab reports showed that my son's DNA or fingerprints were not in any gun or holster even though some of the police involved in Michael's shooting had claimed that Michael had grabbed his gun. The officer who killed my son, his name was Albert Gonzalez. He is not only still on the force at 10 years later, he is a licensed um, concealed gun instructor down in the state of Illinois. The Chicago Tribune uh, did an investigative story uh, and he was listed as one of the multiple instructors with documented histories of making questionable decisions about when to use force. From the beginning, um, I allowed the investigation to proceed. I didn't know it was a sham until many of the facts were discovered. But before long, I realized the cover-up was underway. I hadn't understood at first how closely related the DA and the police were. During his election campaign for judge, the DA had been endorsed in writing by every police agency in our county. Now he was investigating them and it was a clear conflict of interest. I wanted to uncover the truth and so our family hired a private investigator who ended up teaming with a retired police detective to launch their own investigation and they, they discovered that the officer who thought his gun was being grabbed in fact had caught his gun on a broken car mirror. The emergency medical technicians who arrived later found the officers fighting with each other over what had happened, and we ended up filing a 1,100-page report detailing Michael's killing with the FBI and the U.S. Attorney. It took us six years to get a wrongful death lawsuit settled, and our family received $1.75 million. I wasn't satisfied. By a long shot, I used my entire portion of that money and much more of my own to continue a campaign for more police accountability. I wanted to change things for everyone else so no one else would have to go through what our family did. And we did our research. In 129 years since police and fire commissions were created in the state of Wisconsin, we could not find one 
single ruling by a police department, an inquest, or a police commission that a shooting by a police officer was found unjustified. There was one shooting we found in 2005 that was ruled justified by the department and an inquest jury, but additional evidence provided by citizens caused the DA to charge the officer. The city of Milwaukee settled with a confidentiality agreement in that particular case and the facts of that remain sealed and the officer involved and eventually committed suicide. So you can see if there's a problem. To me, the problem over the decades, in other words, was a near total lack of accountability for wrongdoing. If police on duty believe they can get away with almost anything, they will act accordingly. As a military pilot, I knew that if law professionals investigated police-related deaths like, say, the National Transportation Safety Board investigated aviation mishaps, that police-related deaths would be at an all-time low. And so, together with a number of other families in Wisconsin, I launched a campaign in Wisconsin legislation calling for a new law that would require outside review of all deaths in police custody. I contacted everybody. I mean, in the beginning, I contacted the governor's office, the attorney general's office, and the U.S. attorney for Wisconsin. Didn't even bother to return my calls or, or letters. And then I went further. I contacted Oprah, every Associated Press Bureau in the nation, every national magazine, and every news agency, and I didn't hear a word. But I reached out to Frank Serpico, the famous uh, retired New York police detective, and he helped. He had his own experience with taking on police corruption. I set up billboards and a website. I took out newspaper ads, including national ads in the New York Times and USA Today, and Frank Serpico allowed me to use his endorsement. When police take a life, should they investigate themselves? That's what the ad read. Finally, we began to get some movement. I was helped by a friendly Republican legislator, his name was Gary Byes, and a Democratic Assemblyman, uh, her name was Chris Taylor. We passed a law that made Wisconsin the first state in the nation to mandate at a legislative level that police-related deaths be reviewed by an outside agency. I need you to know that I'm not anti-cop, and I'm finding that many police want change as well. It was the good officers in the state of Wisconsin that supported our bill from the inside and it was endorsed by five police unions. And great job on that to uh, Alex and Robbie, and thanks so much to Michael Bell Sr. And condolences for your loss, first of all. I mean, what a thing to learn. And my goodness, we, we found out that the gun got caught in a mirror. Okay, so he thought someone was pulling at the gun, and he found out that's what happened. Why not just say that? It's okay, you made a mistake. You didn't do it on purpose. It's the cover-up that ruins everything, right? You didn't go out there to kill a kid, and you got to live with it. I mean, the cop who does this has to live with it his whole life an accident. But don't cover it up. The family deserves to know the truth. Everyone does. And you knew the truth. It's a great story, and it's why rule of law matters in everyone's life. And that Wisconsin passed this rule, making all deaths at the hands of an officer reviewable by an outside party. I'm so proud of the people of Wisconsin and to Michael Bell Sr. Michael Bell Sr.'s story, his son's story. A great legislative story here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and being that it's that time of the year, St. Patrick's Day, we figured we'd give you the story behind the story, which is what we love to do here on Our American Stories. Buried beneath the St. Patrick's Day symbols of shamrocks, leprechauns, and green beer lies the story of a man determined to share a message with a people who had made him a slave. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of St. Patrick. R.P.C. Hansen wrote in his book about St. Patrick that the tragedy with all the myths and legends, such as Patrick driving all the snakes out of Ireland, his association with using Shamrock to explain the Trinity, and the preconception that he's Irish, is that these actually hide the truth. They hide the real character of the man and the power that drove Patrick to do what he did. What we are about to do is get rid of the myths and the legends and go to the primary source, the words of Patrick himself. In fact, his 5th century writings and letters, known as the Confession, are one of the earliest surviving documents in Irish history. Here's Dr. Tim Campbell, director of the St. Patrick's Centre in Downpatrick, Ireland. Ego Patricius Pacator Russicissimus, I Patricus Sinner, least faithful of many. Those are the words that begin the history of Ireland. Patrick was born into a well-off family and lived in a country estate on the western coast of what was Roman-occupied Britain in the very last days of the Roman Empire. As Roman legions abandoned Britain in order to protect themselves in other regions of the Roman Empire, order and authority fell into disarray and Britain's west coast became vulnerable to frequent plundering by Irish slave raiders. Patrick was a teenager living a very comfortable life as the son of a government official and church cleric, though he himself had very little interest in anything pertaining to his father's faith. One day, Irish raiders captured the 16-year-old Patrick along with several thousand men, women, and children from the surrounding countryside, packed them tightly into holds of waiting ships, and took them to Ireland, a wild and savage place beyond the Roman reach. Patrick was sold as a slave and was made a shepherd for a very harsh master. Patrick hated the Irish, and this hatred fueled his will to live he vowed one day to repay them for their cruelty. Here's Dr. Campbell, Elva Johnston, professor of history at University College Dublin, Patrick's biographer, Thomas O'Loughlin, and father, Billy Swan. Celtic people did not work with slaves the same way that the Romans did. They treated their slaves pretty badly, like cattle, and would have worked you until you died. Particularly as a non-Irish slave, he would have been at an even greater disadvantage because he wouldn't have been recognised almost as a person. Presumably it is a sort of meant-to-be slavery for life. He begins to conclude that this has happened because I deserve it, basically, and this happened to shake me out of my complacency and to shake me out of um, a way of life I was living in which God didn't matter for me. Here are the words of Patrick. I tended sheep every day, and I prayed frequently during the day. And more and more the love of God and the fear of him grew in me, and my faith was increased and my spirit was quickened. 
so that in a day I prayed up to a hundred times, and almost as many in the night. Indeed, I even remained in the wood and on the mountain to pray. And come hail, rain or snow, I was up before dawn to pray. The Spirit was fervent in me. Something new is happening, something that hadn't happened before. That personal relationship, that dimension of a personal relationship with God. Patrick's bitterness and loneliness began to melt away as he came to realize God was with him. He tried to recall sermons from church and stories from the Bible. He chided himself for his boyhood lack of interest in God. Although Patrick knew of Jesus Christ, he never cared. But now, as a slave in a strange green distant land, the little he had learned as a boy came flooding back to him. He didn't have a Bible, but he could pray. And as his love for God grew, his hatred for the Irish died. Patrick was held as a slave for six years as he continued to pray every day. Here's the words of Patrick and Patrick's biographer, Thomas O'Loughlin. It was there, indeed, that one night I heard a voice. Patrick, well have you fasted. Very soon you are to travel to your homeland. Behold, your ship is prepared. I took flight, leaving the man I had been bound to for six years. But the ship was not nearby, but maybe 200 miles away, where I had never been and where I knew nobody. The biggest danger is someone says, you're a slave. I'll find out where you come from and I'll take you back and I'll claim a reward. It took him days to walk 200 miles before reaching the seaport. And there, right before him, was a ship getting ready to depart. But the captain, seeing he was a slave, refused to give him passage. Patrick turned to leave, and as he did, he prayed for guidance. Before he ended his prayer, one of the sailors in the back of the ship said, Come! Hurry! We shall take you on! Patrick was then asked to pledge himself to the crew through a Celtic tradition that included sucking on their chests. These days we would shake hands, and in those days that was a, a way of bonding with each other to show that you would be loyal to them. He didn't want to do that because he was Christian. The sailors gave him a pass and led him on board the ship. They traveled for three days before landing on an unknown desolate port. They traveled on foot for 28 days, searching for food as the haggard, half-starved men grew weak. The captain fixed his fiery eyes on Patrick and said, Tell me, Christian, you say that your God is great and all-powerful. Why then do you not pray for us? We are suffering from hunger. It is unlikely that we shall ever see a human being again. Patrick smiled. Be truly converted with all your heart to the Lord my God, because nothing is impossible for Him. When the men turned around, a herd of pigs crossed the path in front of them. They would feast on ham for days. Patrick writes that after this, they thanked God mightily, and He became honorable in their eyes. But just days after this miracle, Patrick was once again taken captive and made a slave. 
On the very first night he was with his captors, he received a divine message telling him he would remain with them for two months. This is exactly what happened. Patrick wrote, The Lord freed me from their hands. Two years passed before Patrick finally made it home to his family in Britain. The Patrick that returned was a very different person from the one who left. He was someone who had encountered God in the darkest part of his day and who had, as a result of encountering God in a real and living way, uh, become much more comfortable with the idea that God was active and alive and, and to be taken seriously. Then one night, a voice returned to him. I saw in the night the vision of a man whose name was Victor, coming as it were from Ireland with countless letters. And he gave me one of them, and I read the opening words of the letter, which were, The voice of the Irish. And as I read the beginning of the letter, I thought that at the same moment I heard their voice. They were those beside the wood of Vauclot, which is near the Western Sea. And they cried out as with one voice. We ask you, holy boy, come and walk among us once again. And you've been listening to the story of St. Patrick. And a special thanks to CBN Films for allowing us access to their beautifully crafted feature-length docudrama, I Am Patrick which will be premiering in a theater near you on March 17th and 18th. We'd also like to thank the folks at Vision Video for giving us access to footage in their film, Patrick. Check out the full documentary and 1,900 more titles of uplifting family-friendly videos at visionvideo.com. And by the way, what we heard at the end, the Patrick that returned, returned a different man than the one who left. He'd encountered God in the darkest days of his life and took the idea of an act of God more seriously. And those kind of encounters happen to Americans on a regular basis, and we don't shy away from them when they happen. And of course, obviously, we're telling this story because so many Irish Americans call this country home, and it's why we celebrate St. Patrick's Day when we continue more of St. Patrick's story here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories and the story of St. Patrick. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the rest of this remarkable story. After several years in the monasteries of France, Patrick was ordained a bishop. Patrick told his church, family, and friends he would be returning to Ireland. And they were shocked. Don't you know what they do with slaves who run away? Surely God would not require this from one who has suffered so much already. Settle down here in peace. The church leaders argued he was wasting his time. Those brutal barbarians have no interest in God. Patrick told them, God snatched me from my homeland and parents so that I might know and love him. It is in Ireland that I wish to serve until I die. 
if the Lord would grant it to me. So Patrick, who was still a fugitive in Ireland, set his feet to walk and heart to share the gospel message to the Irish everywhere, beginning in the year 432. The pre-Christian Druids were a powerful force in 5th century Ireland. These Celtic religious leaders were part of a pagan priesthood and would be rivals to Patrick's ministry. The Druids hated him for leading people away from their idols. They robbed, beat, imprisoned, and tortured him. He was enslaved a third time. Twelve times his enemies nearly killed him, but always the Lord rescued him. He sells his nobility, which I take to be a reference to him selling essentially his inheritance. It's almost like a form of seed funding, which will enable him to get to Ireland. Here's Patrick, Alan Harper, Chris Seaton, co-author of New Celts, and Father Neil Carlin. It was not my grace, but God, who conquered in me and who resisted them all, that I might come to the Irish nations to preach the gospel. He established his great stone church on the hilltop. The site is strategically located on one of the main uh, transportation routes in inland Ireland. That makes this an extremely significant and important place from which to conduct your mission. Patrick did break the mould of the, of the church at that time. Being in that sense quite radical and um, an outsider, uh, I think that to me is an authentic pattern that resonates with the New Testament. Think of John the Baptist, think of Jesus. They, they were not comfortable within the institutional structures of the church. So much of church leadership was quite locked into an earthly security, a worldly security. Uh, whereas what Patrick did was completely counter-intuitive to go to one of the more wild and unwelcoming places. Patrick needed an awful lot of conviction in his heart, would have needed a lot of fire in his blood to be able to do what he, he did, which was effectively change a nation. I think one of the things that most interests me about Patrick is that he came into what was a situation of social difficulties and considerable conflict with a completely revolutionary message, which, yes, he had to use local um, influence to spread, but which transcended, totally transcended the circumstances of the local divisions and disputes. He comes across from, from his writings as, as a very humble man, a man who knew his frailty, talking of himself as, as a great sinner, like all the saints seem to do. And I often think it's like you come into the sun and you see the dust coming through a, a, a beautiful window in a building. You didn't see the dust before the sunlight shone through that light. And I often think of the saints like that, because you, to you and I, they're not great sinners. But as they came close to the great light and are aware of the great God, they become more and more aware of their sin and yet more and more aware of God's mercy. Patrick converted thousands to Christianity. He opposed slavers, Irish kings, druids, and most of all, hostility from his fellow Christians. Here again is Dr. Tim Campbell. 
Patrick went AWOL. And we just don't know how that all panned out. He said that he wanted to spend the rest of his life in Ireland because that's what God demanded. Therefore, we got to guess that he never did go back. Patrick died of old age and was buried in Northern Ireland in the year 461 on March 17th, the day we celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Not long after Patrick's death, the Roman Empire fell and Western Europe drifted into the Middle Ages. But Patrick's work was not in vain. As Christianity established itself, as it became more vibrant, it became known as the land of saints and scholars, and that led in turn to a whole proliferation of Christian missionaries leaving Ireland and flooding continental Europe. Patrick's story began a chain of events that is quite remarkable in the impact that it had. He wore out many more pairs of sandals in death than he did in life. And he's still going. People are still reading his confession and still being interested in Christianity because he wrote his message down. Here again is Chris Seaton. The work of evangelism in Ireland and the establishing of those monastic houses contributed to quite a strong place of learning, of culture, and definitely, of course, a strong place of of a springboard for evangelism, which down the line spawned the re-evangelization of Britain and mainland Europe. To this day, Patrick's works offer hope for religious reconciliation in Ireland. Here's Harry Smith from Belfast, director of the Christian Renewal Centre. Patrick brought a Christianity that was pre-Roman in that sense, you know, therefore he, he predates everything that we would see in this land as being Catholic or Protestant, and therefore in a sense he's an anchor point for us whenever we're talking about reconciliation in this land of something of a commonality. In closing, let us hear Patrick's final words. I pray for those who believe in and have reverence for God. Some of them may come upon this writing which Patrick, the sinner, wrote in Ireland. May none of them ever say that whatever little I did or made known to please God was done through ignorance. Instead, you can judge and believe in all truth that it was a gift of God. This is my confession before I die. I'm Greg Hengler, and from all of us here at Our American Stories, have a great St. Patrick's Day. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And again, a special thanks to CBN Films for allowing us to access their movie docudrama, I Am Patrick, which will be premiering in a theater near you on March 17th and 18th. And we'd also like to thank the folks at Vision Video for giving us access to footage of their film, Patrick. Check out the full documentary and 1,900 other titles of uplifting, family-friendly videos at visionvideo.com. And my goodness, he was an entrepreneur of sorts going into a wild, untamed land with a message that caused him to meet enemies everywhere around him, converting thousands to his faith, but in the end, lots of enemies too. And those final words, my goodness, I pray for those who believe in and have reverence for God May none of them ever say that what I did to please God 
was not done in ignorance, but to please him. Beautiful words, a beautiful story, Patrick's story, St. Patrick's story. And by the way, that he calls himself a sinner is something we can all, all of us, believers or not, know that we're all flawed. And what a beautiful story and what grace he found through his God. A great story, a great Irish story, a great human story. Here on Our American Story. we continue here with our American stories and this next one is about a really serious subject and one that affects so many millions of American families and we're talking about Alzheimer's disease and my friend Chuck Stetson and the Stetson family office does such terrific work in this area and we're doing so many really strong health stories in partnership with the Stetson family office and this is one he just kept coming at us with and just said, you got to tell this story. You've got to call this lady. And so today we bring you the story of Meryl Comer. She is an Emmy Award-winning reporter. She was one of the first women in the early 80s to host a nationally syndicated debate show. But about 20 years ago, Meryl's husband was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Here is her story. The man I live with is not the man I fell in love with and married. He has slowly been robbed of something we all take for granted, the ability to navigate the mundane activities of daily living, bathing, shaving, dressing, feeding, and using the bathroom. His inner clock is confused and can't be reset. His eyes are vacant and unaware, as if an internal window shade veils our access. Before I grasped what was happening, I was hurt and annoyed by my husband's behavior. Those feelings dissolved into unconditional empathy once I understood the cruelty of his diagnosis. Early onset Alzheimer's disease. He was 58. At first, I ran interference and fought for him because it was the right thing to do. He was slipping out of control, confused, childlike and helpless, his social filter stripped away. He shadowed me because I was familiar and safe, even when he could no longer remember my name. I always loved him, but during our marriage, he was often aloof and unreachable. In illness, unlike in health, he made me feel needed and important to him. Neither a scientist nor a neurologist, I have spent close to two decades trying to decipher what's going on in my husband's head, how hard and unfair it is for such a smart man to lose pieces of his intellect and independence as the circuitry of his brain misfires and corrodes. No new short-term memories stick. His internal navigational compass is shut down. His disease is my crossword puzzle. 
Harvey has long forgotten me, but I am constant as his co-pilot and guardian. Every conversation is inclusive and respectful, even though he is often unintelligible or mute. It is a charade that never ends. I bear the burden of all decisions for us both. The demons and terror of his world define mine. Any challenge is self-defeating. I play into his reality and pretend that his fate and our life together are not doomed. Unfortunately, I know better. Alzheimer's distorts and destroys shared memories that bind family ties. Caregivers are not unlike victims who survive a hurricane and find ourselves sifting through the rubble to rescue faded, storm-drenched photos or sentimental objects. We piece together what's left of our past and struggle to put down building blocks for the future. I need to make some sense of my journey through this storm. My bookshelf is lined with tomes on dementia care, yet the page I need always seems to be missing. Each brain unravels in its own quirky and idiosyncratic way. I have learned firsthand that there is no single solution to taking care of someone with dementia. Many times, personal stories involving Alzheimer's gloss over the unseemly details of care. They're written as love stories of unquestioned devotion, or living memorials to honor someone during better times. Why not? As spouses and caregivers, we deserve to do whatever works for us. It's our version of pain management. But I never wanted to embellish or soften the edges around the truth. It does not do justice to the cruelty of the disease. I offer you my own experiences from a position of hard-won humility. I hope you will thread them with your own. When I say I have cared full-time for Harvey in our home all these years, many ask me why. Even now, there is always an initial reflex that makes me want to say, do I really need to explain myself after all I've been through? I realize that the question is a natural one, a human one, a social one. The interlocutors are not judging me, but rather vicariously checking themselves. In questioning me, they're testing their own capacity to deal with the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and the potential impact it might have on their relationship with a partner or parent. When people hear my story, they sometimes tell me they wouldn't make the same choices. I do not hold myself up as an example to follow. No one who has ever been on the front lines of care ever questions when someone says, I can't do this anymore. But I do want to be part of the last generation of caregivers trapped by a loved one's diagnosis, an absence of disease-modifying therapies, and a troublesome lack of quality care options. When it comes to Alzheimer's, caregivers are frequently too worn out or isolated to protest. Perhaps this is why advocacy around the disease has often lacked the passion and energy that characterize the cancer and HIV AIDS communities. But how will people understand if we don't tell our stories without apology? Alzheimer's disease today affects a reported 5.4 million people in the United States and 44 million worldwide. Like a stealth invader, it is quietly demanding aging populations globally while pushing past cancer and HIV-AIDS as the most critical public health problem of our time. 
Every 68 seconds, another of us falls victim, yet 50% of those with dementia never get diagnosed. There is not a single FDA-approved drug that actually slows the progression of Alzheimer's disease. There have been too many failed late-stage clinical trials with promising drugs that seemed to work until it became clear they did not. Sometimes I think we'd be better off if Alzheimer's disease was a brand new emergency instead of a century-old threat to which we had somehow become inured. Perhaps people would understand that when it comes to this disease, everyone is a stakeholder because everyone is at risk. There are also 15 million caregivers just like me, unintended victims and not among the official count. Add to our legions those caring for loved ones, young and old, with diseases of the brain, traumatic brain injuries, and other chronic diseases complicated by a memory disorder. We speak the same language. Our numbers amplify the collective pain that makes it impossible for me to rest. The only way to minimize the effect of Alzheimer's disease is to get out in front of it, delay its onset, or even reverse it's a devastation of the mind. We need to move toward early diagnosis and study adults who do not yet show symptoms. People like you and me. Such a decision entails hard personal choices, risks, and emotional discomfort. It means demanding safe and clinically valid genetic tests that let us learn if we are at a higher risk for getting Alzheimer's disease. It requires managing our lives and choices under the shadow of the possibility of disease. Those of us who are 50 years or older must stop viewing ourselves as ageless. All of us should track our cognitive health, just as we do cholesterol levels or blood pressure. I write for all of us who are still well, but have seen the devastation of Alzheimer's disease firsthand. The emergency is with us and in us. I write to clinicians, reluctant to diagnose because they can't effectively treat. Please know the inadvertent trauma you inflict on families, left confused, hurt, and helpless. Then time runs out on the ultimate conversation with our loved ones about end-of-life wishes. Their minds are erased. It's simply too late. I write to reach the generation of our adult sons and daughters who struggle to understand our lives as we care for a loved one with Alzheimer's. They stand on the precipice and wrestle with issues and decisions similar to the ones we've faced. They deserve better options and not the bankrupting burden of our care. This is not the legacy we want for our children or the way any of us wish to be remembered. I write for my grandchildren because no matter how hard I tried, Alzheimer's blanketed my home with sadness. I know that loving each of them unconditionally has been my salvation. One day, I hope they'll read these words and appreciate my choices. As I write these words, a faint glow fills the room I share with Harvey. He is always present, even though he is absent. There is an intimacy in our isolation. Nonetheless, I am willing to open the door to our room in the hope that you will find a way inside. 
Only then will my story be worth the pain of its telling. And thank you, Merrill, for that. And Merrill is now the president and CEO of the Jeffrey Bean Foundation Alzheimer's Initiative, which promotes early diagnosis of the disease. It struck her husband, her beloved husband, at the age of 58. A brutal stealth invader, 5.4 million in the U.S. alone suffer from the disease. Harvey's story and his bride's, Merrill Comer, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now our own Carter Andrews brings us a story of an unlikely hero. And the Oscar goes to... Undefeated, T.J. Martin, Dan Lindsay, and Rich Middlemouse. Academy Award-winning documentary, Undefeated. We've got the man here. He is back. Bill Courtney. Bill Courtney. Coach Bill Courtney. Coach Bill Courtney. Bill Courtney joining us this morning. Author of Against the Grain, former coach of Manassas High School football team, profiled in the Oscar-winning documentary, Undefeated. But Bill Courtney's life started far from the stage of an Oscar-winning documentary. Grew up in Memphis. My dad and mom were divorced when I was four. I never really, other than my grandfathers, never really had a consistent father figure in my life. My father figures were my coaches. My mom was a, a loving, caring woman and did the best she could for me. She made some bad choices, was married and divorced five times. My mom's fourth husband shot at me down a hallway with a 38 caliber pistol when I was 17. One of the first real fights I ever got into was with one of my mom's husbands. And as a result, I identify with many kids who are fatherless. I understand that you stick your chest out every day and you carry yourself with a little extra bravado to hide the hurt and pain that manifests itself inside one's psyche as a result of trying to understand as a young man why your father doesn't want to have anything to do with you. I mean, I wasn't an All-American, but I was a pretty good football player, and I can't remember the game or the year, but I scored a touchdown with like six seconds left, and then I kicked the extra point to win the game. Everybody went nuts. Coach was jumping around, and as we're walking off the field, I look up, and all these guys were walking off with their dad's arm around them, carrying their their son's shoulder pads, then their helmet, and I was walking off alone. I was the guy that just won the game. You know, who was there to celebrate with me? Who was proud of me? And I mean, enough of those experiences make you eventually say, What's wrong with me? What have I done? What, what is my flaw that my own father doesn't want to have any time for me? What, why, 
what have I done? What What is wrong with me? And you start looking in the mirror and you start noticing blemishes that other people don't see. And you start thinking things about yourself that other people don't recognize, but you're in search for this truth about why you're not valuable enough to have your father's time. So I was raised going to church. And then as an adolescent, I turned my back on all of it. I was so angry and frustrated that I didn't... It's hard to believe in an almighty father when you don't believe in a father at all. And I just wasn't down with it. But to be honest with you, when I graduated high school, the first time I ever saw a miss was when I checked into my dorm room. I didn't have any money to come visit. I got to go there for free, so that's where I went. I had no idea what college was. I didn't even know what a major and a minor was. No idea. None. I uh, was so unprepared for that atmosphere and an atmosphere of a lot of kids running around with their father's credit card wearing a shirt that was more expensive than everything I had in my entire dorm room. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to be because I didn't even know who I was. After graduating from college, Bill became a high school teacher and a coach at Rosemark Academy. And it was here that he first caught a glimpse of a girl named Lisa, the niece of the lunch lady, Susan. In bops Miss Thing, and I'm like, good gracious, you know, what is that? And that thing left, and I asked Susan who that was. She said, that's my niece you don't want to date. And I said, I think I made an error in judgment. So I married her, and I figured I got to keep her around, so I just started having kids. So we had four and four years, and she couldn't get off the hook that way. But the problem was, when you're making 17500 a year, and you have two kids in the crib and one in the oven, ends don't meet. And so here I was, a dissertation away from my doctorate in psychology, a coach, a married man with two children and one on the way, making $17,000 a year, and I couldn't do it. So I took the quickest job I could, and that was selling fleets of vehicles to companies. So I did that for a couple years, ended up selling some trucks to a guy who owned a lumber company, and he said, you don't remind me of a car salesman. And I said, well, I don't remind myself of a car salesman, but a guy's got to do what a guy's got to do. He offered me $10,000 a year more than I was making selling cars, and I took the job. And that's how I got in the lumber business. And just like showing up at Ole Miss and not having any idea what in the world I was looking at, I couldn't have told you Red Oak from Poplar. I didn't know a thing about it. And now here I am still thinking I'm going to be a child psychologist one day at 26 years old with two kids, a wife, and a baby expecting selling lumber that I know nothing about. I worked there for five years, um, ended up being vice president of the company, moved the company from $25 million in annual revenue to $120 million in annual revenue. I was 31 years old, now with four kids, making a really good living, but I was worried about being the guy who gets relieved at 45 due to nepotism. I wanted to buy a piece of the company. He wouldn't sell it, so I quit. And I had $17,000, four kids, no cars, because both our cars were company cars, and I started this company out of my... Uh, out of my living room with 17 grand. And you've been listening to Bill Courtney's story. And by the way, the subject of fatherlessness is one we, well, we really drill down on 
And you could hear Bill struggle with this, well, through much of his young life. Why me, I think, is always the question a young man asks or a young lady when their father just abandons them and the hole they have to fill. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, Bill Courtney's story, you know some of it if you've seen the documentary. But this is the rest of the story. When we come back, more of Bill Courtney's story here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and Bill Courtney's story. With only $17,000 to his name, this husband and father of four quit his job to start a lumber company called Classic American Hardwood right out of his living room. Let's return to Bill. We opened the doors on September 1st, 2001. I'd borrowed everything I could borrow. I'd hawked my house, sold all my money. We were literally back to eating ramen noodles again and 11 days later the planes flew into the buildings the economy just shut off i mean the whole world was paralyzed so i knew i'd just blown it and was going to be broke and somehow we pieced together enough business to make it through four five six months of that and then things started to turn into normalcy and um i bought a little piece of land and one building on it, which was built in 1889, and uh, went to North Carolina and bought some old, broke down equipment, literally drug some of it out of the weeds from behind big plants and paid cash for it, brought it back here, put it together, started it working, and started with 12 guys. And uh, it was tenuous. Some people think commitment is, if I tell you I'm gonna be somewhere at 10, I show up at 10. Some people think commitment is if, you know, if I'm going to do a good job, I'm going to work my eight hours and be committed. I think of commitment as a, a whole different thing. I think the greatest measure of the success of a leader is the actions of the followers. And so if the followers are doing well and the followers are acting right, then I'll show you good leadership. If the followers aren't doing well or acting right, I'll show you crap leadership. And one of these followers was Sam Quinn. Sam was one of my very first employees when I started this place. He was one of 12 that I hired as common labor. And I mean, Sam was almost 40 at the time. And most common labor in the lumber business is it's backbreaking work. It's hard work. I mean, pulling lumber doesn't sound like something so difficult, but trust me, 80,000 board feet of lumber coming at you in an eight-hour day where you get zero break except lunch, and you're pulling 50 to 100-pound boards second after second onto a pack of lumber. It's hard. It's hard for a young man in shape, much less a 40-year-old guy, much less a 40-year-old guy than Sam Quinn was living in a Lighthouse Ministries, which was a homeless shelter, having had 
problems with the law, problems with alcohol addiction and addiction, and who probably didn't eat but a meal a day. He was a Marine. Uh, he started off his life the right way, and he got sideways, and he got caught. Um, and he went to work. And after about a week, I noticed this guy just working his rear end off, and I liked him. So I gave him a 50-cent-an-hour raise, which I didn't have. But I liked his work ethic. It looked like this was a guy who wanted to be part of something and wanted more than just a check. And one Friday, our tilt hoist broke. Now, a tilt hoist, to your listeners, won't mean anything, but basically... It's a very large, heavy piece of machinery that lifts a pack of lumber up, hoists it in the air, and then tilts it so that layers of lumber can singulate. Board by board by board can come off onto conveyors and chains. So it's how you get a pack of lumber broken down into individual boards in an automated fashion. Uh, our tilt hoist broke, and it's at the front of the manufacturing line. If you don't have a tilt hoist, you can't do anything else. And it broke like Friday right before quitting time at 320. And it was really messed up. And the work I was going to have to do to it was a week's worth of work. But we had to be running Monday because back then, every day mattered. And we had very little cash flow. And I couldn't be without lumber run and sold. Or I would have run out of cash and likely been broke. So 3.30 happened. And I and a guy had handling maintenance. And one of my salesmen got the tools out and went to work on it. Torches, welding, refabbing, replacing bearings, and just all, all kinds of very heavy industrial work. And at about 5 o'clock, I looked up, and Sam was standing there. And I said, Sam, what are you doing? And he said, I'm here to help you with the tilt hoist. And I said, Sam, I can't pay you more than 40 hours a week, and I sure can't pay you time and a half overtime, and we're going to be here all weekend. I don't even think we'll go home and I said, I can't pay you, Sam. And he said, it's my company, too. I want to help. And I said, Sam, I can't pay you. He said, don't pay me. And I said, Sam, I don't feel right about that. Go home. And he wouldn't. And we saw from Friday morning until Monday morning, we saw the sun rise four times before any of us got to go home. Took brief naps, laying on top of machinery and packs of lumber, covered in grease and oil. And we literally got the thing fixed at 6.30 a.m., 30 minutes before shift started at 7. And we ran all day. And after all of that, Sam went to the line and pulled lumber for eight hours before he went home. And I thought, this guy's phenomenal. So I started finding out about his past, um, found out about his issues. And we went on a basically a two-year run with Sam, called on some friends of mine that were attorneys and called in some favors and over the course of two years, we got all of his past issues handled, and here we are 15 years later, and Sam is now a manager here making a really, really good salary, married with three children and a homeowner. And to me, that's what commitment leads to, because Sam saw commitment in us, wanted to commit to be part of what we were committed in his own life to being part of what we were, then committed his own life to straighten his life out, and then committed his own life to a woman and children, and is now a father in an area where three out of every four children born are born to a fatherless household. 
To me, that is the success of my business. That's what I mean when I say success and excellence is not measured by commas in a bank statement. It's measured in so many more important, meaningful ways. And Sam Quinn is a measure of my success, and his children will be a measure of his, all because he saw something worth committing to. Because of their shared commitment, Classic American Hardwood has grown to $55 million in annual revenue, employs 140 people, and has opened offices in Vietnam and Shanghai. But don't let the successes of Bill, or the trials faced by Sam, fool you about who they truly are. People look at me as a white business owner with a book and an Academy Award and all that, and it takes them about three and a half seconds to sum me up. They assume they know who I am and what I'm about by the tags associated with my subgroup. The truth is, I grew up lower income Memphis and my reality is I, I know what it means to be broke. I know what it means to worry about whether you have dinner or not. In the same respect, Sam Quinn is a 50-something-year-old black dude who uh, had a couple DUIs and had some problems with the law and former addict. And we know what that looks like, right? That demographic's obvious. We've seen it on TV. There's movies about it. There's TV shows about it. We know what he is. Sam Quinn's a father and a husband and a homeowner and a manager at a business who works his ass off every day. Um, but people will sum up Sam the minute they look at him. The act of driving down the interstate in Memphis, I can give you the names of four or five streets like Warford and Hollywood and Mill Branch. Every city has them. But it's, it's the streets when you're driving down the interstate and you go over the overpass, you think, this is not where I want a flat tire, right? Those exits. And there's a segment of society that thinks as they pass over those exits and they peer over the side and they see the disenfranchisement and the hopelessness and, and the loss and the poverty, they think, gosh, somebody ought to do something about that. They think that that sentiment matters. You know, my suggestion is tilt the rearview mirror about 40 degrees and say, I ought to do something about that. I don't think it starts with fancy people with nice suits talking big words on CNN and Fox. I think it starts with um, an army of normal folks just deciding I can help. And that's exactly what Bill was about to do. A normal guy who made the decision that he could help by coaching football at an impoverished, gang-ridden school in inner-city Memphis called Manassas High School. After the break, you'll see what happens next when Bill Courtney steps on campus. This is Our American Stories. Bill Courtney's story continues after these messages.
And we continue with our American stories and the story of Bill Courtney, who grew up in inner-city Memphis as a white kid and now returns to inner-city Memphis as a football coach at an all-black school called Manassas. Let's return to Bill. I made a significant error midway through my first year and was taught probably one of my three most valuable life lessons by a 17-year-old kid from the hood named Jamie Bobo. Halfway through the season, we were 3-3, three and three, and that's pretty average, but when you've won four games in 10 years, 3-3 three and three ain't bad. And I was getting increasingly frustrated because the whole team, while extraordinarily respectful on the football field, the minute practice or games were over, they were back into the streets engaging in the same kind of destructive behavior. And the whole team was buying into football. Half the team was buying into the important stuff. The other half team was certainly buying football, but not buying the important stuff. So I said, Jamie, what do I got to do to get that half the team to buy in the important stuff like your half the team? And he said, Coach, just keep doing what you're doing kind of dismissively and I said no man I mean real talk talk to me and I could tell he didn't want to and I kind of cornered him I said Jamie what what's going on he said all right you want to know real talk I said yeah he said they're trying to figure out if you're a turkey person or not and I said Jamie what are you talking about and he said coach every Thanksgiving and Christmas people roll into our neighborhood and they gives us gifts and turkeys and hams and we take them because we ain't got none but then they leave and we never see them again. And it kind of makes you wonder if they're doing that because they really care about us or they're doing that to make themselves feel good. And he looked me dead in the eyes and he said, Coach, what the hell are you really doing here, man? And the truth is, I was getting written up in the paper. People were slapping my back, talking about all the nice things I was doing for the poor kids in the hood. And I was digging it. And anytime anybody asked me about Manassas, I was happy to tell them everything I was doing. Meanwhile, these kids were getting called sellouts. You know, what you want to list that white coach for? You know, I had kids doing homework and friends of theirs were calling them chumps. I had kids that had to get beaten out of gangs in order to play football. I had kids sleeping in the tub. And why that's significant is because in the inner city, tubs are old and they're all made out of cast iron. And the reason you sleep in a tub is if there's a drive-by, you live through the night. You won't get shot in your bed. I had kids doing unbelievable things that I couldn't even fathom my own children having to live through just to be part of one positive thing in their life, which was this football team. And anytime anybody asked me about it, I was happy to tell them all the things I was doing. And... The truth is, those kids saw right through me. So you ask me, how did I get this stuff going? It's the first thing I did was humble myself. The second thing I did is do the other thing that the greatest leaders of our time do, which is they always take in the chin when things go wrong, but they always give credit to the followers when things go right. And when I was asked about Manassas, I started bragging on those kids and quit talking about myself. And as a result, the kids started seeing that my motivation was not for my own exaltation, but it was a simple edification of doing something good for people who desperately needed it. And they started to change because I changed as a leader. And I became committed to that style of leadership. And as a result, 
We went from 19 kids to 25 kids, 30 kids, and then we went to 60 kids and 65 kids, 75 kids, and went from winning four games to winning 18 games. And in a in an area where an 18-year-old male is three times more likely to be incarcerated than he is to either have a job or be in college by his 21st birthday, three times more likely to be in jail from 18 to 21 than he is to have a job or be in college. We graduated 32 seniors and 31 went to college. And this success was also because of a little something called love. I can remember Virginia coming in one time and he just was, his face is all crinkled up and he's so angry. And I said, Virginia, you look like you need a hug. And he looked at me and his face turned and he went from this 18-year-old angry guy to like this four-year-old child. His, the look on his face, I'll never forget it. He looked at me and said, a what? And I said, Virginia, I think you need a hug. I think it'll help you. And he goes, you think so? And I said, yeah. I said, want to try it? He said, yeah. And I hugged him. And after the hug, and I squeezed the crap out of him. I could hear him going underneath there. And when I let him go, I said, how's that feel? And he said, doesn't feel any better at all, coach. And I said, well, I guess it didn't work. He said, but I like the hug. I said, good. So, I mean, it kind of started like that. It was more of a, a joke than anything. But I wanted these kids to understand that paternal affection is a positive thing. Yeah, I mean, to try to show kids who have never had a, a father in their home or a father active in their lives, the importance of fatherly love is um, a challenge. And it was a challenge for me to understand when I was coming up and, and trying to say to the kids, guys, it's not your fault. It's your father's fault. He's the grown-up. He's the one that had lack of commitment. All you did was get born and try to grow up. It's not you. But don't let yourself go there later in life because it could be you if you're going to be that kind of father. And one player who especially had an impact on Bill was Chavis Daniels. Chavis Daniels, who came to us as a freshman, and his first five games, he had like 61 tackles as a freshman of varsity football. And I thought this kid's going to be a Division One freak. And then he disappeared. And then I didn't see him again to his junior year. And what I found out is he got pulled over. He was 15. Everybody else in the car was an adult. There was a bunch of guns, a bunch of dope uh, in the trunk. Everybody went to jail. Chavis went to a juvenile detention center for three months. A month in, he beat the ever-loving crap out of a guard. So his three months turned into a year and a half. And when Chavis came out as a junior, he was a much larger, much more aggressive, very angry young man. He caused an enormous amount of problems on my team, but I always thought it was better to discipline him and try to keep him around than it was to kick him off because I knew if we kicked him off the team and he went back to his same lifestyle, he's just going to be another statistic. Now, Chavis is a father, has a job, and most importantly, started the North Memphis Steelers youth mentoring program uh, three years ago, which has 112 boys and girls in it. We've got three football teams with three different ages, 
three cheer squads with three different ages and every single jersey, shirt, everything they wear on the back of it says school first. And he's literally mentoring kids from the same neighborhoods that I coached in Manassas, but he's not reaching them in ninth grade. He's reaching them when they're six years old and he's making a difference in the community. There's a story under every helmet. Um, kids I've coached, there's Chris Madison as a quadriplegic. James King, my, my star tailback, is dead. Got a couple kids that are locked up for life. Uh, it's real, real life, real true story stuff. I didn't go save anybody. But there's also a lot of success stories. And so one thing I would challenge anybody listening to this to think is that if you really are willing when you go over that overpass to turn the rearview mirror and look yourself and decide you are willing to go work in a place where there is all this disenfranchisement and hopelessness and loss and you're you're willing to go in and actually try to do something, you need to understand there's going to be more losses and successes. But if you humbly submit yourself to societal work that matters, every once in a while success will come along and it's that one success that fuels your fire, not the nine failures. And that's so well said and born of experience, anyone who's done this kind of work. There are a lot of failures, but my goodness, the successes are worth it. And there's a story under every helmet. And what a beautiful line. When we come back, we'll continue with Bill Courtney's story here on Our American Story. Turn to our American stories in the final portion of Bill Courtney's remarkable story. Earlier, Bill had said that he had trouble believing that he could have a father in heaven when he didn't have a father here on earth. But in his senior year of college, Bill returned to church and told us, quote, We're Christians because we need it. We are awful, horrible people who have just recognized that we need this faith and this salvation. Let's go back to Bill on his wife. Lisa. Lisa loves shrimp. And so I was traveling back from a business trip down in Gulfport, and she told me to go down the docks and get some fresh shrimp. I said I didn't have a cooler, and she said, buy one, and hung up. So I went and got a cooler and got some bags of ice, and I went down on the docks to get some fresh shrimp, and then boogie my home so she could have her fresh pulled shrimp, which is great. Until pulling up to find that the dock wasn't the most pleasant place to be. It is the stinkiest, foulest-smelling, stagnant, hot water, fish head, roast, and I'm sitting there trying to choke down this rancid air. And then the shrimp boats start coming in. And I'm like, thank goodness, I'm about to get some shrimp, get the hell out of here. I'm already a... An hour behind, I had to go to Target and get this stupid cooler. And I'm sitting there, and the fishermen show up with the shrimp. And when I thought there was nothing more rancid and disgusting than the docks, I started talking to the fishermen themselves. They've got three or four teeth. They've got marble reds rolled up. they got on their wife beater. Deodorant is more of a suggestion than a requirement. 
They've been out there before the sun came up. They're coming in when the suns go down. They've been sweating. They've got sulfur all over them. And I get my shrimp. I hold my nose. I give my money, and I just get the hell out of Dodge. And I'm about Jackson, Mississippi, when I think, isn't it ironic? Those are the nastiest people on the face of the earth, and that's exactly who Christ surrounded himself with. Fishermen and hookers. And it is just so poignant to me that being Christ-like is getting down into the areas of our society and community that were needed the most, being humble and not telling people that if you don't think like me, you're doomed, but just showing them what a Christian looks like by your actions. I think if the savior of the universe decided those are the people he's going to surround himself with, that's good enough for me. And as they say, behind every successful man, there's an even stronger woman. And this story is no different. Lisa Courtney is one of the strongest people I know. Look, if, if any women are listening to this, try to imagine having a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old and being five months pregnant and going through Walmart. Try to imagine having a two, three, four, and five-year-old and getting them dressed off for church or to go anywhere. At the same time I was starting my business, I was also coaching Manassas. And my God, I don't know how she did what she did. I was too young and immature and stupid to realize how hard I was making life on her. And I was too young and stupid and immature to realize the great depth of appreciation I should have had for her selflessness to allow me to start this business and coach football. My wife allowed me to have my cake and eat it too. Some have said that Bill saved the kids at Manassas, but Bill completely rejects this and says that they actually saved him. And Lisa knew he needed that saving, which is why she let him have his cake and eat it too. The kids of Manassas, I can give you all the demographics, but it's all the stereotypical demographics. I mean, honestly, 97% of the people that live in the neighborhoods that kids go to Manassas, 97% of them do not own a home. Only 1.3% have a bachelor's degree. Only 55% have a college or GED equivalent. The average median income is under $10,000 annually. It is poverty. It is rife with gangs and crime and poverty and, and anger and frustration and all of it. And the reason I'm saying all this is to see those kids started hearing the fundamental tenets and principles after only a few years of work and start bettering their own lives and start going to college and start, yeah, they saved me. They, they renewed my sense of optimism that we can fix what else is. They renewed my my belief in humanity. Listen, let's be candid. Everybody at Manassas is black. The kids, everybody, the the parents, the the teachers, there's a couple white teachers, but everybody else black, everybody. And I dare say they welcomed me into their reality and their school and their neighborhoods much more gracefully than they would have been welcomed into mine. You see a black could, 
with a hoodie, tatted up, walking down the street in the neighborhoods I live in. People aren't so welcoming of that. Well, that's what my kids were. That's what my players were. But they welcomed me in their neighborhood like I was one of their own. Yeah, man. I mean, they did save me. They showed me so much of what humanity can overcome. So my wife was absolutely right. I did need them. And it seems that Lisa was right about another thing. As Bill recalls growing up without a father and how he's still not quite over it. My wife will tell you I'm not. I like to think I am, but I will tell you the worst day of my life is Father's Day. My own daughter, I just dropped her off at Philly this past weekend. She got a new job in Philly. And after I left, the next day I called her just to check on her, being a dad. And uh, she's got a very close friend whose father is an alcoholic. And her very close friend is doing really, really well. Got a good job graduated. She's beautiful, beautiful person inside and out. And she was on the phone with Molly balling because here she is graduated, done well, hadn't gotten in trouble in school, just a really good girl. And she had not in seven years heard her dad say, I'm proud of you. And she was just balling to Molly And Molly was trying to be a friend and told her, but what Molly told me on the phone was, Dad, I actually used some of the things you've told us. And I explained to her that um, the truth is she may never get over that hurt. And I said, Molly, what are you talking about? And she goes, come on, Dad. She said, every Father's Day, you're always a grouch. And I mean, I I don't really guess I even realized that. but I'm 50 years old and um, I don't guess I'll ever fully get over it, but I can at least cognitively understand it and use it as fuel to just not be that guy um, and to be the best father I can for my own children. I will tell you, when we were at, this is an emotional one for me, when we were at dinner, uh, we always had dinner together, the kids and I. We, Lisa and, and I, whether it was 7 o'clock or 10 o'clock at night, we were going to sit down with our kids and have supper. And we were eating supper, and it was the Wednesday before my last, Wednesday before the playoff game of my last season. I had told nobody at Manassas that I was leaving, but I'd made my mind up at the beginning of the season that that was my last year because – I'd missed too much of my kid's life, and it was after seven years, I had put too much of a burden on my family to to do all that I'd been doing. And we were at dinner, and I told the family, I said, listen, I really want you to come to the first playoff game, because if we lose, that's it. We're done. We're out, and that'll be it for me at Manassas. And they said, well, you're going back next year. I said, no, that's something I want to tell you I'm not. And Will started crying. He was eight, maybe, and he started crying. And I said, son, what's wrong? And he said, daddy, you can't quit. And I said, why? And he said, because they need you more than we do. Which sealed it for me 
that leaving Manassas was the absolute right thing at that time. I and my family and my wife put seven years into that place and those kids. But when your own children start thinking that other kids need you worse than they do, it's time. And you've been listening to Bill Courtney and what a story indeed. And we're tearing up here in the studio just listening to it. What a guy, what a life lived, and what a tough decision to have to make, having put so much into a job and so much into a neighborhood, but realizing, thanks to his own eight-year-old, that he needs to be home for his own kids and how to balance that out and how to do the right thing, make sure he's there for his family so he can then be again there for those extended family members when he's done with his. And there are so many stories like this across this great country. We'd love to hear stories from you in your neighborhood. The Bill Courtney's of this country, giving of themselves, great hearts. And by the way, the fatherlessness story, boy, does that stick at 50 years old. Dad, you're always grouchy on Father's Day. And it just stays with you, folks. And fatherlessness, again, is one of the big subjects in this country we're not afraid to get into and to have people share their stories. Because, boy, if we can end just one chain in that cycle and have that fatherlessness boy be a father to his son and to his daughter, we've changed the world. Bill Courtney's story here on Our American Stories.